We turn this evening to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, as I've chosen other text for this Lord's Day relating to, or thinking about in terms of at least, the changing of the year here. And so I've chosen as the text 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I'd like to read this whole chapter. The Apostle Paul, since chapter 8, has been dealing with... uh, Especially meat sacrifice to idols was a prevalent issue in Corinth. Excavations have discovered invitations to join people at meals inside the temple. You can invite friends to a personal meal in the temple. Excavations in Corinth have revealed the temple where there were some 40 rooms, 5 meters by 5 meters, individual rooms that could hold like 10 people, and you could have different little gatherings going on there inside the temple. And then also we know that in these days that lots of the meat that was sold in the meat markets had been sacrificed to idols. And so the Corinthians had a lot of questions about how they as believers now should should deal with these issues of meat sacrificed to idols and so forth. And the apostles reminding them that though they have freedom in Christ, since Idol gods don't exist. You can eat whatever because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Yet, your freedom needs to be subservient to the good of your neighbor. Your unbelieving neighbor that might be confused by you eating meat, sacrificed to idols. And your brother in the Lord, a new convert who might have lived in idolatry and now is confused or misled when you eat meat sacrificed to idols. And so that's the context here. 1 Corinthians 10 at verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness." Now, these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, and do not become idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents." Nor complain, as some of them also complained, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you, except such as as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? 
that an idol is anything or what is offered to idols is anything. Rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. If any of those who do not believe invite you to a dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no question for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you. And for conscience' sake, for the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? Therefore, whether you eat or drink... Or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Imitate me, just as I also imitate Christ. Let's bow before our God once more. O Lord Jesus Christ, the true word of God, Stand among us, we pray, to speak your word and to do things to our minds, our hearts, and our will by the power of the voice of God. And grant us your mercies here in these moments. In Jesus' name, amen. I wonder what King Solomon's servants might have thought when they heard those words of the Queen of Sheba. She had come from down south to visit King Solomon. King Solomon, you recall, David's son had become a king, and the Lord had appeared to him and said, what do you want me to give you, Solomon? And he asked for wisdom, for understanding, so he could rightly rule God's people. And God said that that decision pleased him, that request pleased the Lord. And so he'd give to Solomon not only wisdom beyond what anyone had ever had, but he would also give to him riches, fame. And so it was that Solomon became the wisest of all men, His wealth was untold. He engaged in glorious building campaigns, built the Lord's temple, built a glorious palace. He had a kingdom well organized. And people came, kings from all over the world, to hear Solomon's wisdom. And the queen of Sheba came. And she came with questions. And Solomon answered her questions and exhausted all of the the mysteries of her heart. And then he showed her his kingdom, and and she observed all that he had done, all that he had spoken, all the organization of his servants and their, their apparel, his waiters, and how they behaved, and so forth. And then she said, 
When it was told me who you were and what you had, I, I couldn't hardly believe it. But now I've come and seen and I realize it's all true. In fact, not the half had been told me of how great is your kingdom. And then she said, happy are your men and happy are these your servants who stand continually before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you, setting you on the throne of Israel Because the Lord has loved Israel forever, therefore he has made you king to do justice and righteousness. I wonder if some of Solomon's servants heard her say that, Blessed are your men, happy are your servants who get to stand before you. And I wonder if upon hearing that, some of them thought, you know, I think we forgot that. This kingdom we've gotten so used to, but this kingdom is extraordinary. There is no king so wise as our king We get to stand in his presence and serve him. Among all the servants of all the kingdoms on the earth, we are supremely blessed. And I wonder if as we come to a close of a year, we might, looking back, say, you know, we forgot it a little bit. Among all the peoples on the face of the earth, we are the servants of King Jesus Christ. We are so tremendously blessed. Perhaps as we get ready to go forward into a new year, we might remind ourselves that this is a unique and extraordinary privilege to serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Tonight, the Lord reminds us that this is our calling, that whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, it's all to be done for his glory. It's all for the honor of our God. It's all for King Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, we, we have a great calling and a great privilege to live for the glory of God. And in this, we see the Christian's ultimate aim. First of all, we see the Christian's entire existence here encompassed. And then we see thirdly tonight that this produces the Christian's simplified life. Those three points I would like to set before you tonight. The Christian's ultimate aim, the Christian's entire existence, the Christian's simplified life. Well, as I mentioned, the Apostle Paul is dealing with this issue of of meat sacrificed to idols. Remember, there are pagan temples all over the place. Lots of meat was offered up to the idol gods, but then sold in the marketplaces and so forth. And the Apostle Paul is dealing with this issue. The, The Jews detest idols. Christians also have come to recognize that there's only one God. Idols are not right. But, but on the other hand, the Apostle Paul has said that, that idols are nothing. They're nothings, and therefore, if meat's been sacrificed to them, it's not that the meat is polluted. The whole earth is the Lord. You can eat whatever he says. But then he's taught them that these, these Christian freedoms, these Christian rights have to be subservient to love and to the good of, of our neighbor. And so he says, all things are lawful for me, but, but it's not that everything builds up. So I'm not going to do just anything and everything. I have to care about my neighbor. I have to be sensitive to the conscience of, of, of my, my, my brother who is new to the Lord, who used to live in idolatry and who believed that eating this meat was fellowship with demons I have to not lead him astray and I have to be sensitive to my my unbelieving neighbor who is still involved in idolatry. I don't want to encourage him in that. So the Apostle Paul wants to become all things to all men that he might gain some. But as he sets before 
the Corinthians this calling to care about neighbor, he now tells us in verse 31 that neighbor is not the ultimate end. I don't live ultimately for my neighbors, but there's something even higher than the good of my neighbors. I live for the glory of God. I live for the glory of God. That's my ultimate aim. So we don't just seek virtue for virtue's sake. The world often recommends, you know, being good for goodness sake. Or I just heard somebody recently telling me about how they do good to other people because you always get good back in return. So it's, it's sort of a my, I scratch your back, you scratch my back kind of thing. Other people do good for personal fulfillment because then I feel good about me when, I, when I'm nice to people. But the Christian ethic is not utilitarian. The Christian ethic is not just what's practical and what works out good for me. The Christian ethic is the glory of the Lord. My ultimate aim is to please my God. And so the Christians have lots of responsibilities in life. We have responsibilities to eat and drink and care for our bodies. We have responsibilities to care about our neighbor. But the reason, the ultimate reason for our existence is the honor of our great king. Our catechism, Heidelberg, begins with those words of comfort, right? What's your only comfort in life and a death? The, the Westminster Shorter Catechism begins a little bit different. It says, what's the chief end of man? And it answers, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. To glorify God, that's my chief purpose, and to enjoy him forever. Now, that's rooted in creation. God made us for himself. We we were not created to be independent agents who invent our own purpose for living and have our own kingdom. We were made for God. And it's very clear that the, 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 the doctrine of evolution in our culture has been embraced not primarily as an attempt to understand how the world was created, but it's embraced today primarily as an excuse to live for self. If God made us, we have a responsibility to God. But if we essentially made ourselves, then we're free to live for ourselves. But if we're made by God, we owe everything to God. And God will hold the world accountable. And God is holding the world accountable. And God's judgments are already in the world. And God's judgment is coming because, because mankind has tried to exchange masters. Has exchanged the glory of God for something else. And God refuses to let go. He won't let go of his claim upon us. He won't let go of his purpose to have a people who love his glory. And so God's at work in the world restraining sin and bringing salvation. And God will have a people for himself. Isaiah 43, the Lord says, I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name. Whom I've created for my glory, I have formed him. Yes, I have made him. Lord, it's assembling a people for his glory. Isaiah 60, also your people shall all be righteous. They shall inherit the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. Or another Isaiah passage, 61 verse 3, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. God will save his people and he will make them happy, but his ultimate aim is his own glory. And it's the same thing when you turn to the New Testament and look at God's work of salvation or recreation in the New Testament. 
Ephesians 1 says that he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace. And 2 Thessalonians 1 says Christ is coming on that last day to be glorified in his saints. He's going to fulfill his purpose in us that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you. Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer how to order our lives by ordering our petitions. And the first petition of the Lord's Prayer is, Hallowed be your name. Let your name be sanctified. Let your name, God, be glorified. And Jesus said to his disciples, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. So you see, the entire purpose of creation and recreation or creation and redemption, it's all about the glory of our great God. That's why he made the world. That's why he's redeeming the world. And it's strange then, isn't it, that our minds run so quickly and when we live self-consciously as Christians, we become more and more aware of this oddity that though I'm made by God, though I've been redeemed in Christ and restored to God, so often my first inclination is me. It's me. What do I want to do? What would I enjoy? What do I like? We're often concerned first about our own pleasure, what will satisfy me, about our own name. What's somebody going to think about me, about our own security? How much money do I have about our own comfort? What would make me feel good about our own family happiness? What kind of a family situation would bring me joy? By nature, we're idolaters, that means. We seek our own glory. We pursue our own agendas. We try to establish our own identity and purpose. And that, that should grieve our hearts. So at the end of a year, we ought to repent and confess and say, Lord, we, we have turned in on ourselves. have turned away from you and turned in on ourselves. There was far too much self-seeking in 2023. I'm sorry, Lord, for my lack of interest in you and your name and your glory. For the way I set myself forward as the king, made myself my own God, cared more about my honor and happiness than yours. I at times misrepresented you to people. We have to humble our hearts to confess our sin. And yet we should be so thankful tonight that the Lord has not left us to that idolatrous self-seeking. But he is at work in this world. I read in Herman Bovink's book on ethics this week this statement. He said, once sin entered the human race, it would have totally corrupted and even destroyed and exterminated humanity if left to work undisturbed, but God did not allow that to happen. He had a different and higher purpose for our race. He wanted to prepare a people for himself, a people to proclaim his praise. What if God had left this world to its idolatrous self? It would have been utterly corrupted and destroyed. But God is working through history to counter this destructive fury of sin. He's he's bridling the, the idolatries of man with the punishments he sends, with, 
With plagues he sins, with devastations he sins. God is, is blocking humanity and its idolatry. And at the same time, the Spirit of Christ is working in the elect to bring them to saving faith and to give them new hearts to follow the Lord. In fact, Paul says at the beginning of this book, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of Christ. Apart from that bond with Christ, that, that communion with Christ, we are only idolaters who seek our own glory. But God sovereignly and graciously drew us into a living communion with Christ. And who is this Christ? Well, he's the Son of God come in our flesh who, who says the most amazing things. Remember in the Gospel of John how many times Christ said these kinds of things? John 7, verse 18, of himself he was speaking when he said, He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true. Christ sought the glory of the one who sent him. And in John chapter 12, you remember this? Now my soul is troubled. Christ is thinking about the cross. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Or again in John 17, in the prayer Christ offers up to his Father. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. Now you've been called as a Christian into fellowship with that Christ, whose very life goal is to glorify the Father. And you've been brought from the fellowship of death and the fellowship of Satan into the fellowship of Jesus Christ. So that that spirit of this Christ lives in you. And so we have communion with Christ in the seeking of God's glory. And we've been rescued from the barrenness of a self-seeking life and brought into the lush garden of fellowship with Christ in the service of God. Can you see that in yourself tonight? Can you see that and say, I have a new heart. I love God's glory. I love God. I want to serve him. I want him to have honor above all else. If that's the case, then it shows in our worship. First Peter says, then we declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We want to worship him, adore him, acknowledge him. If God is now our God through Christ, then it shows in the way we treat our neighbors. It's not just about what I want to eat. I want to eat meat. But it's about what's good for my neighbor, for the glory of God. What's good that God's name may be glorified in my neighbor's life? What can I do to promote that? If we have communion with Christ, then it shows in the things that we ponder, and the things that we delight in. What do I like to listen to? What do I like to read? What do I like to watch? I have a communion with Christ in pursuing the glory of God. Is it perfect? Far from it. But it's real. The Spirit of Christ convicting us when we live as idolaters, strengthening us, encouraging us. So we begin a new year and we pray, Lord, let your Spirit do greater work in me. I was speaking to a lady on a plane years ago. She was a life coach. And she said that she, when I asked what that meant, 
She helps people figure out what their life goal is, and then she helps them map a way to meet that goal. Well, if you're in Christ, you don't need a life coach to help you figure out your life goal. It's already been determined. Your goal is to bring honor to God. That is the reason you are alive. And the word of God, the law of God, shows you how to bring God glory. So the principle is this, not my rights, not my happiness, but God's praise. Charles Hodge, the Princeton theologian, wrote, All the special directions given in the preceding discussion are summed up here. Let self be forgotten. Let your eye be fixed on God. Let the promotion of his glory be your object in all you do. Strive in everything to act in such a way that men may praise the God you profess to serve. Amen. That is our entire life. That's the ultimate aim and the aim of everything. Think of that secondly tonight. It's the aim of everything. It's the aim of our entire existence. The apostle, at verse 31, he He's summing things up. That's why he says, therefore. He's going to sum up what he's been saying. But then he, he, he elevates it to a whole other level. Because he takes in not just the whole business of food sacrifice to idols, but, but everything he's been saying. And the whole Christian life, when he says, therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And we expect, of course, that in the church we're supposed to glorify God comes to matters of idolatry and stuff, we know we want to glorify God, but the Holy Spirit's telling us here there's actually no area of life, there's no segment of life, there's no place where God's glory is not our obligation. Whatever you do, we do many things, right? God has made us people who have all kinds of relationships and all kinds of opportunities. We have ears to hear and eyes to see and mouths to speak and minds to think thoughts and hands to do things and feet to go places. And, but whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Nothing's excluded. What's combated here is the compartmentalizing of life that that happens so easily. Maybe for Christmas you got a, a new sewing kit with different compartments, or you got a new toolbox with drawers and little sections and divisions. Or maybe remember back before credit cards became the thing that there were, you know, uh, money organizers, uh, expandable file system. You got money. This money is for groceries. This money is for gas. This money is for a mortgage. And sometimes we treat. God like that. These compartments are for God. Here I pursue his glory, but this is me time. This is discretionary money for my life. And God says, no, I own the whole kit. It's all mine. Your whole life is mine. Everything you have and do and say, it's all mine. Colossians 1 says, for talking about Christ Jesus, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. Now, to the unbeliever, this sounds oppressive. 
totalitarian religion. It demands everything. But to the Christian, this is liberty. This is dignity. To know that I'm Christ everywhere, all the time. There's no lasting meaning in serving self. If there was, we wouldn't have millionaires shooting themselves. Our joy is to serve the eternal God whose loving kindness is better than life. Our joy is to be restored in Jesus Christ to the thing for which we were made and the thing that alone can fill our lives with meaning and can delight us. In fact, it's this truth that we get to live for the glory of God that that dignifies everything the Lord calls us to do. Remember in the Apostle Paul's day, there was not only a lot of meat sacrificed to idols, there were a lot of servants and slaves, right? Something like a third of the population of the Roman Empire were slaves. And yet Paul says in Colossians 3 that you ought to serve not as men-pleasers when your master's eye is on you, but, but you ought to serve fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, for you serve the Lord Christ. That was, of course, the great rediscovery, or one of them, of the great Protestant Reformation in the 1500s, that then in an era when it was thought that the real dignified life was to leave behind families and secular occupations to live in a monastery, the Reformers said, no, you can eat to the glory of God, you can drink to the glory of God, you can farm to the glory of God, you can raise children to the glory of God, all of life is spiritual and can be offered for God's praise. And there's a great difference, isn't there, between making the glory of God, the personal God, the living God, your aim, and making an abstract concept like virtue or goodness your aim. We're not serving a philosophical concept. We're serving a living being. The God who in love who made us. The God who in love redeemed us. The God who our Father can't wait us to live with him eternally. It's a joy to serve him. I'm not pursuing some mere religion or philosophy, but a person. The Lord Jesus Christ. So as we end a year and begin a year, because we love our Lord Jesus, we can ask him to uncover to us areas of our life that are not really in subjection to this purpose. And say, Lord Jesus, cause your kingdom, your reign to come in me by exposing to me renegade areas of my life and compartments that I have set aside outside of your presence and your purpose for myself and expose that to me so I can repent of that and bring everything to the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ and say it's all yours, all of my time, all of my money, all of my hopes, all of my dreams. I lay it at your feet because you are my Lord and my Savior. What might God, even this evening, be calling you to reform? Is it the way you spend money? Not really investing your money for eternal things? 
Let's see your relationships. You've been treating other people as if they exist for you. Is it your business that you've been exalting yourself as the king of your dominion and haven't placed at the feet of Christ? Is it your entertainment? Entertainment is a God. That you're using electronic devices for yourself and not for the glory of King Jesus. Is your emotional life, you cater you cater to your own emotions. They are, they are the gods of your life. And you haven't yielded your heart, your emotional life, to the Lord Jesus. Our entire life for the ultimate aim. And if we do that, we discover it's finally a quite simplified life. Let's look at that last of all tonight. There's a simplicity of life when all of life revolves around Jesus Christ. When that's not the case, life is complicated. The, the God of our age right now is uh, individual self-expression. And so everything is referenced in terms of how I feel and what I think. And this has not brought a simplicity to life, but it's brought about the most complicated confusion we've ever seen, that now people are unsure if they're male or female. In the past decade or so, it's a big push for the minimalist movement, not as an art movement, but as a lifestyle, where people thought if we just declutter our lives, if we get rid of things we don't need, if we remove distractions and overscheduling and less essential things, we can focus on what's more essential. One fellow who wrote a book, Becoming Minimalist, writes, Minimalism is the intentional promotion of the things that bring you joy and the removal of those things that do not. Well, if you seek that kind of minimalism outside of Jesus Christ, you're really just exchanging one way of pursuing the idol of me for a different way of pursuing the idol of me. The materialist pursues the idol of me by getting all kinds of stuff. The minimalist pursues the idol of me by getting rid of all kinds of stuff. But it's still the same idol. And it doesn't simplify life, no matter how tiny a house you get. The only way to find peace and harmony in life is to have a life wrapped around God. When God's glory is not the aim of our life, we end up with a multitude of gods. Because outside of God, there's no God who can make the claims that our God makes, that he created all things, he upholds the whole world, he alone is the complete Savior, and he can provide everything you need. There's no other God in the world that does that, so if you don't have this God, then you're going to end up with a pantheon of gods. It's a very complicated life. You have to run here and there, you have to bow to this desire and that desire, you have this master and that master. But the true God is everything. He's a blessed unity, isn't he? Father, Son, and Spirit. Dwelling eternally in perfect love and communion and an eternal delight. God is all things. God is life in himself. God is all glory. God is all happiness. God is all strength and power. He's everything. And we find everything in him. 
And so for the believer, knowing God is both to glorify God and to be satisfied in God. That's why the Westminster Shorter Catechism doesn't have to choose. What's the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. They go hand in hand. Again, Princeton professor Charles Hodge wrote on the passage, It is by thus having desired to promote the glory of God as the governing motive of our lives that order and harmony are introduced into all our actions. The sun is then the center of the system. That's a good illustration, isn't it? The sun, the center of the system. Our sun is the center of the solar system. These planets go around it. They all respond in a sense to what is at the center. There's a unity to our solar system in terms of orbits based on the centrality of the sun. And when the glory of God is the center of our lives, then all the pieces are ordered and in harmony, right? We don't have to choose between various gods or between various duties. We may at times, of course we struggle at times, how much time to spend at work, how much time to spend at home with the family, that kind of thing. But it's never that we actually have to choose among gods or masters. We simply pray, Lord, how can I glorify you in my use of time? How much time should I spend here or there? But my whole life is yours. And so the problem is never that we have a multitude of gods. The problem we face is that our hearts are often fragmented. So we have to pray with Psalm 86, verse 11. Unite my heart to fear your name. It's a powerful prayer. Unite my heart to fear your name. My heart, by nature, is like a shattered window pane. It's a thousand pieces. Got all these different desires and emotions and people tugging at me. God, unite my heart. Who but you can put it back together so that your glory can shine through it? Now, some false religions begin to recognize this, that we can't live a fragmented life. Radical Muslims seem to understand that no happiness exists apart from wholehearted devotion. One ISIS recruiting video targeting Western youths has young Muslims speaking these words, the cure for the depression is jihad. Oh, my brothers, come to jihad and feel the honor we are feeling. Feel the happiness that we are feeling. What prevents you from obtaining martyrdom and the pleasure of your Lord? Look around you when you sit in comfort and ask yourself if this is how you want to die. So they think by giving their entire life to Allah, then they will have happiness. Well, They've got the wrong God, but they do sense, don't they, as beings that we were made for something great, for a life devoted to something great. But the great one is the Lord God of Scripture. The one that Paul knows through Christ when he writes from the prison cell, Philippians 1, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Jesus taught us the parable of the treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up and then in his joy went and sold all he had to buy the field. 
John Calvin writes on Psalm 86, verse 11, The heart of man is full of tumult, drawn asunder, and as it were, scattered about in fragments until God has gathered to himself and holds it together in a state of steadfast and persevering obedience. That's what God has done in Christ. He's gathered up our fragmented heart to set within it one supreme goal, to live for his glory. And when we have that as our goal, then we have order and peace in our lives because we have but one purpose, whether by life or by death, by eating or not eating, by drinking or not drinking, by whatever I do, Lord, let your name be magnified. If you can say that tonight, then bless the name of your God because it's not you who renewed that purpose in you. It's not you who gathered up the fragments of your heart. It is the work of Jesus Christ who died for our idolatry and who arose to make us his and wholly his forever. And if tonight you can't say it, you say, this is not, I have to confess, this is not the purpose of my life. I want a little religion. I want a little religion, but I don't want this kind of fanatical devotion. Well, then you haven't met Jesus Christ. And tonight at the end of a year, and in these moments, however long they are before Jesus appears, this is the moment to confess your sin and to bow your heart and say to Christ, I am yours. I am completely yours. Amen. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your gracious word and for directing our hearts. We do thank you for saving grace that's rescued us from our idolatry. And we do pray that we learn to worship you and serve you with everything we are. Help us, God, as we enter into a new year to be devoted to you. Forgive us of our failures in the past year. O Lord, we have often strayed. And show us, O Lord, the glory of our God, that more and more seeing you in the face of Jesus Christ, we will love you and desire to give you everything. Be magnified in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.